Welcome to the What's Up with Docs podcast, the podcast for all of us. I'm Tony Bell, the creator and host. For the land acknowledgement this week, we'd like to highlight the Gabrielino Tongba Band of Mission Indians. The Tongba occupied the entire Los Angeles Basin and the islands of Santa Catalina, San Nicolas, San Clemente, and Santa Barbara. From Topanga Canyon to Laguna Beach, from the San Gabriel Mountains to the sea, they lived throughout most of what is now Los Angeles and Orange County. The existence of their people on these ancestral lands has been unbroken since long before the first contact between the Tongva and the European. Why do the Tongva today keep the Gabrielinal name? Although Gabrielinal is the original name given to them by the Spaniards that colonized their land, it is important to recognize that that is what their ancestors identified as for more than a century. To erase the name is to erase the identity of their ancestors that helped them find their way back to their culture and eventually back to the name Tongva. They have ancestors buried at the San Gabriel Mission who only knew themselves as Gabrielinal who carried on their language and traditions and proudly called themselves that. Although they are happy to have found their original name in their language, they could not in good conscience erase the name that their ancestors prided themselves in. One call to action that the Gabriel Tongva want you to know about is the protection of white sage. White sage is often taken from their lands and the land of their Southern California native neighbors. White sage smudge sticks and products unless otherwise labeled as farmed are often poached from wildlife preserves in Southern California. Poached sage harms immigrant communities. Poached sage is never ethically gathered. Poached sage ferments and cannot be safely inhaled. Poached sage cannot give blessings. Poached sage harms indigenous communities and an inappropriate use of sage is cultural appropriation. So what can you do? Ask where your sage is coming from. Buy sustainably farm sage only. Use white sage as it is intended, sparingly. Don't appropriate a culture that is not yours and bring awareness and boycott the middleman. To find out more how you can support the efforts to protect white sage, please visit. In this episode, I speak with the film director and co-founder of Steam Films, Mustafa Youssef. In this episode, I speak with the film director and co-founder of Scene Films in Cairo, Egypt, Mustafa Youssef. We chat about his near lifelong love of film, the entertainment industry in Egypt and its impact throughout the Arab speaking world and the unique challenges of filmmakers on the continent. We also get into the many artist development programs and resources that are under the Scene Films umbrella, including a crowdsourced post-production unit and their magazine, Terzo, the only online magazine and portal on cinema, audiovisual media, film criticism, and filmmaking in Arabic. Mustafa is also the producer of Homemade Stories, which will have its world premiere at ITFA on November 23rd. Mustafa is a Bruce Springsteen fan, so this week's song is Hello Sunshine. I always like to start these conversations off with how we met. And we actually met because um, the great Marion Schmidt introduced us via email. So I was looking for mentors. I run, I run a program in, in Cairo called Scene Studio, which is a film development program. And we're looking for mentors, for international mentors, basically, to come and work with filmmakers who are still developing their, their films, summer fiction, summer documentary. So we were looking for someone uh, who works on documentary, who has international experience, 
who you know knows how to navigate kind of the international uh, uh, scene, but at the same time is not, um, and I mean this with you know all um, with uh, with all positivity, uh, but is not colonial or post-colonial, so it's not white and does not come with like a white perspective, does not come with the white gaze onto the films that come from our region or from our country, you know, or from the global south. So we were really looking for a rarity. So someone who, who understands kind of the international, the European, North American scenes, but at the same time has a critical standpoint and is able to, you know, connect on a human level with the filmmakers, with their stories and, and you know, um, not, not come with these kind of preconceived ideas of what a documentary should be or how it should be. And I asked, I've asked different people, I've asked uh, Bridget O'Shea, I've asked Marion, I've asked others, and the name Tony Bell kept on popping up. So, and then I, I looked you up and um, I, I, I saw the podcast, I heard one or two episodes of the podcast. Uh, one was also with Annie Mercedes and you know I've had the pleasure of meeting Annie Mercedes at another uh, meeting so I felt kind of that you could be the one you know for us which was great yeah and then we connected and I thought when we connected it was really you know you were really welcoming you were really open to this kind of collaboration and it, I mean it was it was really I think overall positive experience from our side at least I hope from your side it was the same I, I have to say that I, you I remember you were introducing me to a, one of the filmmakers I work with you yeah. said the nicest thing you, you said that I'm from the global north but I have a global south mindset yeah yeah that made me tear up a little bit you know it's and I, I, it, okay thank you and I'm still working on that you know, because I still, yeah, I'm still definitely working on that. Yeah, you know, it's a growing and development process because, you know, these things have been indoctrinated. But, like, I really appreciated that. I was like, no, that's probably one of the nicest things somebody's ever said about me. <laughs> You're like, ah, so now I understand why they got in touch yes, with me. Yes. You know, now I, it made some sense. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So I just want to get into, first of all, how did you get into documentary filmmaking? I'll try to be quick because, uh, you know, people don't have three days or four days to listen to this. I always kind of knew I wanted to work in film uh, ever since I was in fourth grade. So ever since I was a child, I wanted to work in film. And, you know, I've, I've carried on this path. You know, I went to film school. I, gra I graduated from film school. And I worked a little bit in the mainstream Egyptian film market as an assistant director. I, I mean, of course, uh, it was not a pleasant experience overall. I mean, there are important things to learn from working in mainstream cinema, but I think you you become disenfranchised with, you know, what cinema is, this kind of dream that you have about it, what it does for people and the impact it can have on society, etc. And then I got an opportunity to work on documentary films for back then in the mid 2000s, uh, one of the rising companies in documentary production in the region, a company called Hotspot Films, it was based in Dubai, and it was predominantly producing documentaries for Al Jazeera Documentary Channel. And this was kind of my first experience doing film, documentary film professionally. It was really a, a good experience. We were working on two series. One of them I just developed and I didn't direct it. It was called um, Children Abroad, and it was about Arab children living in non-Arab countries. So Arab children in Latin America, Arab children in Europe. So I developed this and it was kind of trying to find ways that the filmmaking itself as a process kind of opens up questions with the kids. So this was nice. And then I, I did two more series with them, which I directed. One was uh, called Before Petrol, 
uh, and it was about the history of the Gulf countries before the petrol emerged. It was nice, but at the same time, I kept getting to a lot of problems for saying things that they did not want to broadcast because they wanted to talk about how the petrol kind of changed society, but they didn't want to say that the petrol destroyed, you know, the social fabric of society, which it did. Yeah, that, that's, that's a different message. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but this was kind of my entrance to documentary. I was directing and producing documentary for TV, and I ended up, you know, just doing that for a long time, for like four or five years. And then in 2011, when the revolution happened in Cairo, I was living in Dubai at that time. I decided to move back to Cairo. Uh, and me and my friend, we decided to set up Scene Films as a company that produces films that we believe in. And we, you know, so completely independent films projects that we feel strongly for, not commissioned by television or not mainstream commercial cinema. So yeah, so then I produced The Mulberry House, which was a Yemeni film directed by Sarah Ishaq, which premiered in Itfa in 2013. And I worked on a couple, a couple more projects. Uh, so, so I produced three overall with this new film I'm producing. It's three independent documentaries, but for television, I directed and produced two full series and uh, four independent, like four one-offs, four documentaries. So, like something like twenty-four films. So, I want to go back a little bit to your working in the commercial e Egyptian in entertainment industry. Correct me if I'm wrong. If I'm wrong in the Arab-speaking world, aren't like shows like something that is syndicated all over? Because I just have this memory of I went to Morocco in, during the last century when I was in college. Because that means I'm old, and I remember the host family I was staying with. They were into this show. I think it was called Hamsa Hamis. Okay. Yeah, and it was it was like a, this Egyptian soap opera, and they were really okay, into yeah. it. They were explaining to me that oh, everything on the Moroccan TV was like Egyptian stuff. Uh, they call it you know Hollywood of the Orient or or Hollywood of the East. Right. Mm -hmm. um, tra traditionally, historically, Egypt has been the major entertainment and media exporter in Africa and Asia. Actually, we used to you know we used to export films to India before Bollywood grew and cinema exports in the late 50s and early 60s was the third national um, uh, income oh. in the country like the, the it was such a, an important part of the economy and it became like a self-feeding kind of industry in the sense that you know if someone talented from lebanon or from morocco or from tunisia they would not have investment to produce in their own countries instead they would move to egypt and become egyptianized in that sense, it also used to benefit from all of these talent that fly in from all of the Arab world. It grew substantially. But in the past, I would say 20 years, it has been in decline. Now, if you look throughout Egyptian history, you know, the, the major predominant stars are not necessarily Egyptian, but they, they come from Tunisia or from Lebanon or from Syria or from Palestine or, you know, from or, or Morocco. But they came and became Egyptianized. They acted in Egyptian movies. They sang songs in Egyptian and so on. So this has been kind of the, the relationship. It's, it's, Egypt has been historically the, the, the major entertainment production hub in the region, but it has been in decline for the past 20 years because neighboring countries, as they you know, get more and more developed, especially you know, uh, have these big business hubs and uh, you know, big investment cities, etc. they have understood the power of the media. So now you have strong production, TV production in Syria, recently in Jordan, all across, you know, the Emirates has had quite a few. Now Saudi Arabia is emerging, investing a lot in entertainment production. The same goes to Morocco and Tunisia. So 
I think, ironically, the, the number of feature films produced in Egypt in the past few years have been less than the number of films, for example, coming from Lebanon, which is a much smaller country. It's been in decline, especially as the government has become less and less interested in supporting cinema and supporting film. There is much less resource available now to Egyptian filmmakers than before. So are there any efforts to, since it was such a vital part of the economy, are there have been any efforts to reinfuse energy into that aspect of the Egyptian economy or? I mean, very little, very little. And of course, it's not separate from what is happening across the whole, the, you know, the cinema production, independent film production across the whole mm -hmm. world, short form, online distribution, things like that coming to take the lead. And ironically, the Cairo International Film Festival, which is one of the earliest film festivals in the world, it's one of the, you know, on the list of FIAP, which is like Association for Grading Film Festival, it's one of the grade A film festivals. The last two years, TikTok was an official sponsor. Really? TikTok? Uh, of, <laughs> yeah, of the Cairo Film Festival. So you can kind of see, you know, wow. how cinema itself is dying out and all of these kind of new mediums are uh, are eating into it in a way. So since TikTok was a sponsor, did they have like special strands on like short form content? No, they just did like media coverage, things like that. Okay. But I mean, I, I just, just thought it it was really ironic that you know that the, the, the festival cannot survive without the sponsorship of something like TikTok, yeah. you know, or without the sponsorship of these kind of new, new short form platforms. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I there is there are a few efforts across the country that people try, especially with film festivals, that people are trying to use these kind of media opportunities as a way to direct support to independent filmmaking. But it's still, I would say, it's without huge governmental support. I, I think it's still too few, especially, I mean, we're a, we're a huge country. We're a country of 100 million citizens. And you're talking about a, a size of interest in this cinema that is so small. I mean, we cannot, you cannot compare the numbers, for example, to a country like Germany or Italy or France, of course. So, or even, even if you compare like the, the number of like governmental support to films in relative to the population, if you compare it to Tunisia or if you compare it to Morocco, then you find that they, their support is much higher. Okay. So, wow. Um, okay. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, right now, I think in, for Egypt, we are at this kind of crucial moment that either you know the the big investments and the government are going to realize that if they don't push into you know the creating of cinema and entertainment that if they don't push more actually the the, the interest in egyptian productions will die out because you know the less they invest or the less they support it then the the, the worse the quality is and if the quality is worse then viewers fall out you know so it's it's a it's a spiral. So, and especially with yeah, strong competition coming from Jordan, Syria, Morocco, you know, so that be better productions, more money being invested in it. So, like here, it's so much content coming in, like in various avenues, just like here in the U.S. I think the U.S. is such a. Um, from from where I stand, of course, I understand that many filmmakers in the U.S. are still not as happy with how it is over there, but from where I stand, you have so much opportunity 
because of this kind of democratization of uh, broadcast and distribution, in a sense, that you have so many different channels, you have so many different distributors, you have so many screens, you know, some are dying out, some are, but you still have so much opportunity. And here, when you look at it in numbers, the the available source for a filmmaker to distribute the film is so, so small, two or three distributors, that's it. Two or three for independent filmmakers in Egypt? Two or three for any filmmakers, mainstream distributors. We, you only have two or three distributors in the whole country. And I say two or three because, you know, the third works was one of the major two. So, okay. So, so it's really... <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's literally two or three. And of course, the, the TVs are all owned by one company. And so the decision making power is very um, like it's, it's in the hands of very few people, basically. So what about like opportunities to distribute online? Because there are a million and one streaming services here in the U.S., is something similar happening in Egypt? Yes. I, yeah, I mean, this is kind of a new uh, a new hope. It's been coming in, and I think a few VODs have opened in the region. The many filmmakers are now, you know, t- trying to target them. So I think there is there is potential there. It's still fairly new. We're talking about something that has some of the platforms have not even opened yet and have already started acquiring content. So it's really new. Some of the platforms have only been in, in existence for the past 24 months. So not more than two years by any chance. But it's, you know, it's a new opportunity, which I think can be can be promising. And I think also that the, the key issue for Egyptian filmmakers and what we try to push for is this idea of aiming to fundraise from in, internationally to get international money in into the films. Uh, and then at the same time, trying to build a local audience base that even though the tools that are in existence, so like the distributors, the cinemas, don't allow for the filmmakers to reach their audiences, but maybe when you kind of have some sort of a large enough audience base, then you can get the films to your audiences. So you try to look internationally for the money, you know, for funds or from, you know, pre-sale or or even from sales. So, and this is this is what has been happening with the independent productions. I mean, it's, it sounds kind of logical and uh, like common sense, this is what you should do, but it's not as easy, of course, because for the past, you know, 70, 80 years since Egyptian cinema, you know, started, it has been a predominantly local cinema. So Egyptian films would be distributed all across the, you know, the continent, but at the same time, they had a huge base, a viewer base in the country. Even like my Arab friends would call it an impenetrable industry because it doesn't care about what the world thinks of it. It already has its audience. It's it's complete. You cannot affect it. You cannot change it. Big, you know, and you know, many film, many Egyptian films were in you know Cannes competition or Berlin competition, but it was never in the news. It was it was never important. Back then, it's more like the industry was interested in it, but not so much like the people outside of the industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They didn't care. So now you're trying to kind of change the mentality of the people, and we're talking about even the mentality of the sound designer, the mentality of the editor to kind of understand that. You know, there is a different way to do things. They need to think creatively about their, you know, decisions. And, the, you know, international development of a film takes longer. You need to stretch the time for, you know, the time span of production for longer. So it's not easy to kind of, uh, yeah, it sounds good. That, okay, to get financing, you think about international distribution, you think about international audience, but it's also challenging at the same time. You face resistance from, you know, not just resistance of these kind of international platforms or trying to get into co-production markets or trying to get some deals, but also resistance from the screenwriter or resistance from your 
you know, cinematographer, resistance from your editor. Producing films this way is not the way that they were taught in film school and it's not the way they think the industry works. So you also face you know, different layers of resistance. When you say resistance, is it people just having, they're wanting to do it the way they think they should versus like trying to collaborate? Yeah, I, I don't want to get too specific with examples, but um, the idea that, okay, when you, when you talk about filming in actual locations as opposed to filming in on set uh, for fiction films, then you have a lot of people who don't understand why you want to, why a director wants to do this, what difference does it make? because mainstream cinema for the past 70 years has been predominantly filming on sets, you know? This is the way we do it, and this is the yeah. way it's done, and why change it? And also, for example, to, to, to bring a, an example closer to documentary, so while working on the editing of a film, the idea that this cut, that, you know, the director and the editor don't sit together and they organize all the material and cut it, you know, beginning to end, rethink the church and then station someone who has more experience in narrative storytelling, perhaps bring on board the commissioning editor, give their opinion, and then, you know, destructure and restructure the whole film. This is a process that most established Egyptian editors would not be open to. They would, they would give a lot of resistance to going all, all the way to doing this. They would want to sit with you for two months, two months and a half and edit the film because they know best. They know their job. It's their job. They finish it. Right. And it's good to go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and even when we were working, you know, even when we were working with like television channels, this is how we dealt with them. You know, we know our job. You know, this is it. Uh, so now you're, you're asking them to basically question their daily practice. And it's it's difficult. It's a, it's a new way of thinking. Yeah, it's a new way. Yeah, of, yeah and a, a new like a new muscle that needs to be developed. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So I want to go back to something else you said about how you knew when you were in fourth grade that you wanted to be a filmmaker because it's interesting, the last two folks we, we interviewed, we interviewed Raven Two Feathers last weekend and they said they knew they wanted to be a filmmaker like from the time they like landed on the planet. And then the person before that who's with Noise PR, PR agency in in Europe, she said like at eighth grade that she knew she wanted to be a publicist. I'm like, how do you know what a publicist is at eighth grade? But you know, so I just think it's, I think it's like really fascinating that some people like are so young and you just know like, so how did you know you want to be a filmmaker? I got my first photography camera uh, when I was in fourth grade and I, I started filming, I mean, back then it was, you know, film and the, the role had, you know, 36 pictures and you would have to wait for three days to see the pictures yeah you had to anyway. go to a place to get yeah. for the young people you had to take yeah. the film to well here in the u.s the, we like to like a, a drugstore or, yeah. or a camera place to get it developed and you have to wait i remember putting a lot of care in just how how important these the, how precious these pictures are so i would put a lot of care in the you know the composition and i would try to put some meaning into it and so after I took the pictures my you know my mom would look at them and you know she would say ah oh, I think you have something there you know you, you could you maybe maybe you should you know think about doing film and she got this idea implanted in my head in a way uh in in you know in in a in a true inception uh, way was your mom in the arts too yeah yeah my mom she, she still works in the arts my uh, yeah my 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 family works in the arts so it's uh, 
so th this is this is in the zeitgeist of you okay yeah, in the ether. yeah okay that's great yeah but i mean I, I i try not to carry the same kind of heritage to my children i'm hoping my son will become a football player <laughs> the first athlete perhaps in eight generations of this family so uh, i think it would be a, it would be a good a refreshing change are, are you hoping for like a, a big contract with a team like the only team i know and football wise is manchester united because only because it's just mentioned so many times in so many films <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the only reason Absolutely. why i know I, I, yeah i don't know nothing about me that. neither i know i know my son likes to run after balls uh, so <laughs> so i think this this is a good enough indication and i know they make a lot of money so yes. hopefully he will be producing <laughs> my you know my next film exactly. or something after <laughs> he'll be he'll be the ep but he'll be the executive producer financier so, yeah <laughs> with, yeah with his big football money <laughs> yeah you know no i mean no pressure there you try to not put that you know too much pressure on your children but right uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like run faster <laughs> Okay, um, so let's get into um, scene film. So what's the origin of the name, scene film? Well, scene, scene is a letter in Arabic. It's one letter. It corresponds to the letter X in Latin. It's basically, and it's used in, for example, in algebra, it's always used in, like, instead of, you know, in X, X and Y, you know? So, so, so basically, scene is the variable. It's, you know, it's always in, in, in algorithms. It's, it's, so it's the variable letter. And of course, it's the first letter in the word cinema. Uh, so it's so it's uh, for us. The idea was um, when me and my partners thought about you know creating this company was that we didn't want it to be a rigid structure, which in after some time it would become its own kind of oppressor in a way. We had the idea that it would be constantly variable. It's a it's a company which responds to the productions that we're working on and it would try to invent the rules through making the work while you know while making the work. So it would embody this idea of you know uh, uh, praxis. It's theory and practice and and we would be critical in everything we do but we would not have any rigid rules of things should be done this way. And again this is coming from the background of mainstream cinema that you know everybody's saying things should be done this way so the idea for us to choose this name was to say that no things can be done in any way uh, we just have to be flexible and we have to be variable and react be reactive to the story this is what we tried to do in the productions that we did and while we were working on our films we realized that you know there is more that we have to do than just get you know find interesting film ideas and try to develop them and get them made you know we realized that you know we can't find a good sound designer to collaborate with we can't you know we realized that there should be good writing coverage of independent films that information and content written content specifically related to independent film mm -hmm. in arabic is non-existent mm. so as we were doing as we were working on films we kept feeling that you know there is more and more areas missing and because there is a lot missing we feel that sometimes we try to do too many different things we try to to focus on doing our thing but we basically started doing what we call projects so we have productions which are the films we work we work on uh, but then we have projects which are basically cinema development activities so we did a writing workshop we ran a film club we did a sound design workshop. We launched a web magazine, which covers writing about film in Arabic. The magazine is called Terso, 
So it's T-E-R-R.S-O for any, you know, Arabic reader uh, listeners, you know, Arabic reading listeners. Uh, it's only in Arabic, unfortunately. We can't, we can't have it bilingual. Uh, and our, our, main, our main aim was to fill the, the, the gap in the content available in Arabic about filmmaking in general. So, so, so we launched, we launched there. So we did, we did these film development workshops and we collaborated with uh, festivals in the country, either to do industry activities or to do, like we ran a film criticism workshop, then the trained writers to then watch the films and write about them. And we, I mean, and we ran another workshop with smaller film clubs across the country on the idea of programming and mediating discussions about, around film and creating like a smaller community that is more cinephile and maintaining that community. So for smaller film clubs, not, not based in Cairo, but uh, across the country in smaller cities as well. We're doing all of these activities basically to complement our productions. So this, in a way, made our productions few <laughs> because we didn't have time to do everything. We're, we're a small group of people. So, but we, I, I think we try to balance. So every now I would say every three or four years, we have a film that is our production. And in between, we do all of these kind of activities, which is good as well, because then the films that come out are really, for us, they're never like commercial products or they're never made to, because there is a financial opportunity in making them or anything. The, most probably it's the opposite of that. So, it, but it's really films that we feel that we can develop time and energy for them over the span of time, you know, many years, usually four or five or plus to get it done and out there. So actually started because we wanted to produce in a way production became kind of like the hobby of the company. Okay. And the <laughs> development activities became officially what we do. Okay, so how do people get into your the programs that you offer? Is there an application process or do you do like the industry thing like going well we we haven't been traveling to festivals lately you know well uh well we were traveling virtually not physically but do you meet with filmmakers at different festivals so how do people get the opportunity to work with you we have open calls for everything for the community which we hope to serve which is the independent filmmaking community in egypt which is predominantly on social media platforms like facebook and twitter we're very present on Facebook, on Twitter, on YouTube. This is our heaviest presence. We open calls and we publicize them. We're featured also in like other magazines and blogs and things like that. Whenever there's an open opportunity, it's publicized through that. But also because we've been around now for 10 years, since 2011. People know about you, obviously. In this, within this community, we've become known, I would say. So we're not as known as mainstream productions. You know, we're not known. If you, if you ask someone who works in a completely, in pharmaceuticals, he, he would have never. Never heard of scene films, but you're. He would have never heard about Yeah, them. but you're known within yeah, the industry. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So within, within the community that we serve, basically, I think we have a good following. We usually have, I think, more interest than we can provide for so for example in scene studio which you you were a mentor in we've selected eight films but there were from the applicants there were approximately uh, 25 good films we've had like 70 applications and 25 were really good they were really deserving of support and it was very difficult to kind of because of limited resources to select the final eight we tried to do other activities that cater to the bigger group so we actually did another workshop for the shortlist. We do this for two reasons. One is for 
you know, benefiting the community, but also because we, we care about our position in serving this independent filmmaking industry. So we don't want people to become disenfranchised with us and like hating us for never giving them the support that they want. So we try to find ways in making people still interested in our existence and invested in it. You're, you're offering them something. Yeah, exactly. We did a limited workshop for them. So not the whole full nine months program and not with international experts, but with local experts. So we did a, a limited three-day workshop for them, two consultations as well as local experts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was very happy to know that some of the projects that even were in the shortlist developed a lot afterward. So it's it, wonderful. Yeah, so it's good. So in a way, we do, we do all of this. We try to maintain a healthy relationship with our uh, community. And our belief is that it's, it's extremely difficult to make films in Egypt right now, to make independent films, especially documentary independent films, even more so. It's, it's part of it because of COVID? Uh, well, obviously. But is it because documentary films in Egypt don't get a lot of support? It's lack of an infrastructure of, of any infrastructure of support. There are very few regional opportunities like the Arab Fund for Arts and Culture which, you know, is amazing. It's, it's single-handedly supported so many films and others. But, I mean, there is very few opportunities, venues of support. You literally, to, to do this, you have to know that you're doing this mainly at your own cost and for your own interest. And hopefully, maybe, you know, you will get a sale afterwards that would compensate you for all this time and effort. Truly, it's a labor of love. <laughs> it is. It is. It has to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, some people are smart. They make a documentary and use it as a way to market themselves as filmmakers and to help them get into more commercial venues, which I think is great. And some people, they find ways, you know, they cut ends, they find organizations not necessarily related to film and they convince them to give them support. So people are kind of what we call, we have an expression in Arabic. You saw with the donkey's hoof. With the donkey, like the needle and thread. Explain that. So this is the expression that we use in Egypt because basically we try to sew with the donkey's hoof. You don't have the tools to do what you have to do, but you you end up doing it anyway. You make it work. (laughs) You make it work. So I think that's, so people do this. I mean, people kind of invent ways to make it work all the time. And I think it's remarkable. Yeah, so it's very difficult to get these films made. But we believe that because it's so difficult that there is no way uh, individual successes can accumulate to anything unless it's a collaborative, it's, it's a communal success. Kind of like what happened in Iranian cinema, what happened in, you know, in Italian cinema in the 60s or in the French Nouvelle Vague. It has to, has to be a communal success. So because, because of this idea, we try to foster this idea of community. We try to help when we can. And we try to bring people together. And and this is why we care so much about this idea of not losing members of the community that people would, you know, go to into advertisement or people would say, oh, no, you know, these depend, it's impossible to make it. I'll leave it and, you know, not go. So we try to push people to help each other. And I believe that accumulatively this, this, uh, this idea of independent producers and filmmakers making films in Egypt, which create some sort of a momentum that would make it then easier. It would inevitably lead to the existence of the infrastructure, which is now lacking. Um, so one thing I wanted to ask, we talked about seeing films offering free and open source post-production support. Like, what is that? And here in the U.S., you think like, Post-production is rarely like free and open source. And this could be one of the most expensive part of the film, like obviously editing, color, correcting, just everything having sound design, everything having to do with post. So how are you 
able to open source that? We collaborated with an organization which we work with frequently called the Arab Digital Expression Foundation, which is also another remarkable foundation working in this um, in various practices, but it predominantly focuses on the youngsters and the youth. And they have a strong belief that they've passed on to us in the idea that, you know, that if, if you truly want a liber liberated content, if you truly want independent stories, you have to use independent tools because your tools cannot be, you know, monopolized. And then you try to, to, to make independent production. So from this idea, I worked with two of their engineers, two of their developers, software programmers. We've done this kind of analysis and testing of the editing softwares and the mixing softwares that are available for open source. And we chose uh, Ardour for mixing, uh, we chose editing either on Blender, which is also open source, or on uh, PTV, which is an open source software, and the color grading, I can't remember now the, the software, Blender has color grading modules, but also there was another, another software for color grading, which I can't remember now. But we basically, we tested all of these different softwares, and then we set up a software for each process, and it was functioning at our unit. And we invited filmmakers to come and use our unit for free to use these tools to see if they can use it. And a few filmmakers did. I think it was mostly suitable for short films. I think once a film has gotten so much amount of media, it's, the loading within the software was slightly more difficult. Yeah, so, yeah, there's only so much you could do, right, okay. So mm -hmm. yeah, ex except for Blender and Ardour, these are the two softwares which are open source and are remarkable and they can handle any size of media. These are remarkable softwares, which we, we continued working with them and they're they're backed by even like good foundations which have really good practices etc but uh, unfortunately our unit we, we had to close it down uh, like a few months ago so it's no longer in existence it was set up in late 2014 between 2015 and 2020 i think it gave support to something around like 20 films all for free so these are films that were edited for free or mixed for free or color corrected for free we have not surveyed like in, in actual numbers, which I'm, I regret that we haven't now. In a way, I hope that we've created more value within the industry than the cost of, of the unit itself, like as a model. I think we should perhaps go back. We have the list of films, so we should perhaps go back and survey kind of what these films did and what they achieved and find out like in numbers how much value we've kind of elevated from their own from their budget. I think that would be a great idea because you know anything that can help you know, reduce costs for a filmmaker is like is great, you know, and especially and especially anything that get, helps to give them quality work. So is that something y'all are tr thinking about trying to bring back or is is the question around funding, you know, because it's always funding but <laughs> You know how it is with with hardware specifically. So it it was deteriorating for five years until it was, you know, it needed it needed it needed a lot of money to up upgrade, um, and and then we've had like an unfortunate incident at the office and we lost half of the hardware as well. There was a fire. Uh, it's 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 on our social media. Oh but it's, goodness! Yeah. <laughs> oh. That's terrible. Yeah. Oh. So we had to leave the office and we lost our post-production room. And now for us, it feels like too much of an investment to try to work on building again. And I feel that we've done this kind of favor to the community. I'm hoping somebody else will, you know, will fundraise for it. Maybe if we maybe maybe if we survey the numbers and we can prove it, it's a really good project, then we can pass it on to somebody else to fundraise for it themselves. After these five years, 
we were just certain we don't want to do this again. We, it was exhausting doing it as well. Yeah, it's just the thought about recreating it, especially after fire. That that must have been awful. Oh goodness. But I mean, for us, it was not it was not just even the the editing software or the mixing software, but also the storage and the media analysis. So one of the one of the developers we were working with developed like heavy extensions, a platform called Pandora, which is based on another platform called Padma, which is also fully open source. It's available online. And it's a really good way of analyzing your media and storing your media. So even the servers and the media servers, so the infrastructure itself is open source. And it's, it's from this idea of liberating your workflow completely and you know, working with tools that you own completely, that you can invite a friend who is a developer to tweak around for you. And you could customize it that, yeah, and, and it could be customized too. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and if you have money to buy software, this money can be given to the developer who will customize it for you. And, and then you, you create better job opportunities in a way in, you know, for the local community as well. So I, it's, uh, it was this idea of this model that we wanted to, to test out and it worked. I mean, we, and this is part of the reason why like I said, there's so many ideas that we want to begin and we want to do. And for us, it, in a way, after we start something up and it, and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. We tried some things and they didn't work. But once it works, we feel that, you know, we hope that somebody else would take it on so we can come up with another idea. No, yeah, exactly. Go on to the next day. Like, we, hopefully we've inspired you to, like, pick up this mantle and keep going. Yes, yeah. So, so how, many, how many of y'all are in scene films? So it's you, your partner. I think I've met maybe three, three of y'all total. You've met maybe Isra four. and Yara, who are our lovely coordinators. Yes, uh, Yara is awesome. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you, uh, and then there is Amir, the accountant. The, officially, these are the people on the payroll. And then we have other people that are, you know, frequent collaborators or people who we usually work with. We have Fatma Abid, who is a marketing expert. She helps us a lot with ideas for distribution, ideas for activities and programming, and even project management. She's helping me now with the sales of the film, you know, so because of her background. And we have Michel Youssef Shafi, who is a film editor and a frequent collaborator on many projects. He's one of the few editors in Egypt who were kind of willing to go into this journey of adjusting his practice. Uh, and I think for the better, yeah. He worked on award-winning documentaries like uh, Mother of the Unborn, which won an award in ITFA, I think 2014, if I'm not mistaken, and Roshmiya, which also won a couple of international awards. So he worked on a few documentaries. Uh, he edited our most recent documentary as well. And then we have Sharif Hilal, who's a cinematographer and producer, also a frequent collaborator. So we have people who are, you know, who come part of the scene community, who come per project, and then we have we have the staff, which are the smaller group of people. So, and very often, actually, the line separating the two is not it's very it's very blurry, you know. So, for example, the, our computer engineer, who is you know someone we hire just to do specific things, he's not on the payroll. He's there are some weeks where he's in the office more than me. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> for us also, I mean, and, and this is something which is very usually overlooked, which is the, the kind of the energy that people come on board with. The hierarchy is structured in a way. I try to form like long relationships with, with collaborators. I think it's very important. And you try to form 
you you want to make sure, and this is something that you know I try to convince our partners and supporters all the time to increase the budgets for the staff and increase the you know the, the budget because I think I really think it's very important to pay people well, and it's usually struggle because usually partners don't want to pay for your internal staff or they don't want they want you to pay on the actual project only so it's usually a, a difficult conversation yeah we can't do this production stuff unless we have overhead taken care of and i mean i've had people who would say it's not our job to make sure that your company is open but it's our job to to make sure that the project is made and i try to tell them that you know the project can never <laughs> be made if the company is, is not open, yes, it's not going to it's work. Like, they're going to make it self. Exactly. So, it's like the, the chicken or the egg, you know. <laughs> so you want to pay people well, but also you want people who are involved, who are not doing it for the money. So I think it's always a constant kind of struggle and balance. But for us, it was very important to bring everybody on board the staff and the community in a discussion of the, the payment structure in a discussion of the internal policies of the company, which is something perhaps is commonly done in the global north or in, you know, new hip companies or something like this, but it's not at all common practice in Egypt, definitely, and perhaps not even in the Arab world. This is what I think. I think people talk about like, oh, we should do these things or they pretend to do these things, but then people at the top still make the decisions. <laughs> So we, we still have a ways to go too. Like we're cool with that. Like, oh, in theory, but you know, the practice of it is a whole other different animal. So so tell me about your hybrid reels film program. It was an idea. We did it in 2014. It was the hybrid and the hybrid. <laughs> okay. The hybrid is the program. The program itself is hybrid. So it's composed of uh, different components that show different documentary practices from the super conventional to the super experimental to the like extremely academic and you know so mm -hmm. so the idea of the, the the hybridity is not it's not a it's not a film program for hybrid documentary films but rather it is a hybrid program for documentary films it's a program we collaborated with Zawiya Cinema and it was um uh, the main programmer of Hybrid Reels was Alia Ayman, who is currently uh, living in the U.S. She did uh, a programming season with the Flaherty in New York. So Alia Ayman, he's, she's a dear friend. She was the main programmer of Hybrid Reels. And at that time, we wanted to do a set of discussions and talks about what it means to make films independently in the region and in Egypt. So we, we collaborated together. She programmed the majority of the films and consulted me on it. And I programmed the majority of the, the talks and discussions and activities and the workshop and I consulted her on it. So we did this like really nice collaboration together. Zawiya, the company that Alia co-founded is the only art house cinema in Egypt. So it's the only venue, it's the only venue for, for uh, art house or alternative films to screen. They were also the distributor of our films. It's based in Cairo, it's in downtown. They have two screens. It's a lovely building. They have two screens. But at the time, they were really struggling financially. And she said, OK, listen, you have a dead month anyway. It was March, which is usually not a very good month because it's before the final exams. It's after mid-year holidays. It's not a very good time. So she told her colleagues, OK, give me the cinema just for this month and I'll see what we can do. And this program was able to sell, I think, over 2,000 tickets of attendance in the different programs, the talks and the films which is for the numbers 
for uh, for the cinema was huge. It was it was a huge success. So it was really, I mean, some films like especially the very experimental ones had something like seven tickets, <laughs> but some films were full house and had to you know and had to uh, be uh, screened twice. But I think we were really happy. And we always said that, you know, even if we sold seven tickets, we found the seven people in Cairo who are willing to watch yes, this. Yes, who want to see that film. film. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so even this for us was a success in a way. It was a lovely program. Unfortunately, we couldn't do it again, again, because of funding reasons. And then Zawiya, at that time, they were operating a smaller cinema. Now they're operating a bigger cinema with two screens. And uh, they have a much more heavier program now. They have, I think, six festivals a year. And they have at least 10 releases a year, 10 film releases a year. So they have a much busier schedule now than we did back then. So we had more liberty. But it's one of the things that I think maybe perhaps in you know, a few years time, we could do another round of. Uh, I think it would be good. But it was a one-off, a one-off program. Let's get into your latest project, which I actually watched last night, Homemade Stories. I mean, it really seems like... Um, there are a lot of films like overseas, and when I say overseas, not in the US, like filmmakers who are not in the US, who like do these really beautiful films like that reflect on memory and history and how that correlates with like what's happening politically. Because I've seen several films of, of this type of topic, like at, when I've gone to the Yilova Film Festival, when I've gone to Doc Leipzig, it seems like there's this eagerness of, of filmmakers who are not here in the U.S. to kind of explore how their lives intersect with these larger political events. But also I thought it was wonderful use of photographs in the film because sometimes we discourage people from using like static photographs in the film. But the way it was edited and cut, it actually is very dynamically done. But tell us what Homemade Stories is about, and then we'll, we'll get into deeper into it. Basically, Homemade Stories is a film project that started out as a film that Nadal, the director, wanted to make about the cinema renovation project in the heart of Cairo. Nadal came here in 2011. Uh, thinking he would only be here, be here for a few months before the revolution is successful in Syria, and then he would go back. And while he was here, friends of ours in an organization, cultural organization, were took on this project of renovating an old cinema theater. And they basically invited him to come on board to see the space. And as soon as he set foot in it, he wanted to make a documentary about this endeavor of renovating the cinema, uh, what this cinema means for the community around it and for the people renovating the project, you know, belonging to each other and belonging to society and this idea of shared communal experience. And he called the film back then the coming attraction or the next film. And the idea was that our film that he was making would be the first film to be screened in this cinema when it opens. And, you know, this will be done in a few months time and the cinema, the, the renovation will be successful. He will screen the film. And, you know, things in Syria would settle down. Like a homecoming, in a way. In a way. And then he would go back to Syria and he would continue his film projects in Syria. And he also had another film project in Syria about his childhood cinema. You know, so it was kind of a nice way. That's kind of his thing, revisiting cinemas of the past, theaters of the past. past. You know, I mean, at least at that moment in time, he was thinking about his, this project and he arrived here and he was seeing this project and he felt that, you know, it's a... Uh, it, there is something that touched him. 
uh, we were very, I think, him and us, he, he told me, okay, come on board, let's produce this. And I said, I have no idea what to do with it. I mean, it's kind of an ongoing thing. He said, okay, let's find a crew. So we called up friends and it was kind of a communal experience for people got together and decided to help him make this film. Little did we know, you know, that, you know, this kind of hope, we, that, that, you know, that we were very naive, this, this hope of change and, you know, of, uh, of renovation, of reimagining our spaces and our society and, and recreating it, that was not successful. So the cinema project failed. Not only did the cinema project fail, but the organization making the cinema project had to close down its offices in Egypt and move outside the country. <laughs> and his hope of ever returning to Syria, I hate to say ever, but I mean, his hope of returning to Syria in these couple of decades has faded away as the revolution turned into into war you know he was thinking that he's leaving his house for a few months and this turned out not to be the case we reached this point with the film where we didn't know what to do with it should we abandon this whole project is it was not working you know it was not it, he he kind of with the help of you know advice of many friends he said okay this is definitely this film is not working but there is another story you know the story of the hope of what could have been and in a way the story of of the, the failure to realize the hope. Uh, so, I mean, we jokingly say that this is the story of three failures. This is the story of the failure to renovate the cinema and the failure to make the film about the cinema and also the failure of Nudal to return to Syria. I mean, and we, we, we love, it's, it's heartbreaking. And I mean, Nadal is very, Nadal and his family, he, he opens up his heart and his family's like invite us in with their own home videos and home materials. Yes, we, we are in the house singing songs with the kids and singing Frere Jaca. We are there. It's a very honest portrait of, you know, a, a portrait of an artist who is also trying to redefine, you know, if, if his relationship to the art form that he chose for himself and to the society that he wants to create art for. You know, he's deprived of his society and he's deprived of his art form. So, and he's kind of trying to re-carve re out his role, you know, in exile, in, in, in displacement. And, and in an exile that he did not anticipate. Absolutely. So when he came to Egypt to start the film, when he thought he was just going to be there for a minute, is that when the war started in Syria? He basically, he was one of the filmmakers that very early on signed a petition calling the Syrian regime to stop using violence against the peaceful demonstrations. He was an employee of the National Film uh, Institution, the Syrian National Film so he was immediately fired and he had to leave very quickly because he got a tip that they were coming to arrest him. At that time, they were arresting many other filmmakers and activists. You know, this is, this is around the time they arrested Orwa, Nirabia and others. So he basically, he had to leave in a hurry. Uh, and also the, 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 the temperament across the Arab world at that time was that revolutions are successful. You know, the revolution in Tunisia succeeded, supposedly the, 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 the revolution in Egypt succeeded, allegedly. And, and, then, <laughs> and this was kind of the idea. The notion was that, of course, the Syrian revolution will also be successful. Maybe it takes a few more you know, weeks. Maybe it takes a few more months, but it will succeed in overthrowing the regime 
And of course, there will be, you know, democratic quarrels and problems, but at least, you know, it will settle down and, and I can return. This was the expectation of everyone. That's this, it, it has been. Of course, the, the Syrian regime heightened the level of violence to an extent that created a reactionary violence in return, and then it turned into a civil war. This was not in a way foreseen at all in early 2011 especially during the time of the, you know, when the revolution was still peaceful. He hoped that, you know, after things calm down, he'd be able to come back and he would no longer be, you know, wanted by the regime. The regime would be overthrown, perhaps. And then he'd continue working on his film project. But of course, this was not the case. So are there a lot of folks from Syria and Egypt? There are many. I think Egypt, not as much as the other neighboring countries. I don't want to say any like fake generalization from the observations. Uh, I feel that the Syrians who came to, because, you know, they have to come by uh, flight. They cannot, they cannot come on foot or they cannot come by car like to Lebanon or Turkey or to other or Jordan or other neighboring countries. So they have had to book a flight. They have had to kind of gather their savings to come here and join like either university or have a business project or have a job because Egypt did not officially open up for asylum. But you you can enter as a Syrian. And then if you have a way to get your papers approved to get a residency, then you get residency. So they've all had to kind of find ways to stay here. So I would say uh, demographically, Egypt has welcomed in less people than Lebanon, Jordan, or Turkey, than uh, neighboring countries. But there are there are quite a few. I mean, there are areas which are, you know, dense with Syrian population. The beautiful things I thought about when I was looking at your film was I, I love some of the person on the street interviews with folks as they were reminiscing about the cinema and like the mm. first the first film they saw there and that like where they sat yes. and it really captured for me like the magic of the movie house Absolutely. You know, which we kind of i think we're we're trying to get back yes. to that now that we're semi not really out of covid yes. but like i thought that was just so beautiful and it's like oh like just being in that darkened space and you're about to go into this new world and i thought that was done beautifully you know and just like just regular folk talking about it yeah i think nadal has this i mean he's a foreigner he speaks with a with a with a syrian accent uh, yet he has this remarkable capability of connecting with people in a very human way that allows them to kind of become children again or kind of revert back to their childishness. For him, he's really interested in this idea that cinema is the collective imagination of us as, uh, you know, as a society. It's a shared experience, you know, and it's, it's a way for us to sit together and have a shared imagination. So he was very interested in connecting with them on this idea of what they imagine when they think about the cinema. And he thinks that exactly because of this idea of, I mean, he, he wrote in his um, early treatments, I remember the his sentences very clearly. He was saying something that uh, the tyrant is always afraid of a shared imagination. And in this revolutions and cinemas, this is what they share. This idea that people can come together and they can have a shared Im imagination of an image, of a hope, of something that you know would transform them and i think he uh, very romantically thinks of the cinema theater in, in that way and he was trying to capture that from their stories even though these characters are not necessarily friends but they're from the same neighborhood and they do have a shared history and they have shared imagination and if this cinema would ever to open it would kind of 
put this imagination to life. It would allow them to exist together again, to collaborate together again. And it, it would reform a coherent community, which is something that the tyrant, whoever that may be, is working very actively against. You know, it does not want a coherent community to have, you know, shared collective experiences, let alone creative and imaginative ones. So, and I think this is kind of, this is his vision that inspired us in a while while working on the film. Thank you for mentioning that, but I, yeah, it's, it's one of the things I like. Yeah, it was very sweet. Like you could see, particularly like when he's talking to these old men and you could just see them like going back to their younger selves, you know, their facial, their faces change and there was just a, a glow and excitement in the, in the reminiscing. So I thought that was incredible. I want to add that the film is screening, it's in the ITFA Envisions competition and the world premiere is on the 23rd of November. We, we, we want the same idea of uh, a collective viewership experience of our film because you know we feel that this is very important so the collective imagination i love that that was beautiful okay so we always like to give our guests the last word so like any final thoughts first of all thank you very much once again for inviting me to be on the podcast i i feel privileged to be among you know the list of experts that you have had for and that you have probably have afterwards so it's really uh, you know a privilege for me uh, it's really an honor to be having this conversation with you if there is any last words I think it's great that uh, when I'm talking with you when we're talking with Marion or we're talking with Bridget or we're talking with Annie Mercedes where we're talking with other international allies we feel this sense of that we are a family we can share stories of our families together and I feel that in a way we're redefining this international family of independent film and independent documentary. And I'm really happy that it's more welcoming. It's allowing more filmmakers, more Arab filmmakers that I know, more Egyptian filmmakers to come on board to share their films and hopefully, you know, find a place in the international industry. It's really, um, I think it's really wonderful what you're doing. Yeah, I thank you for it. And yeah, for all the listeners, you know, always, you know, try to, watch our films, so Egyptian or Arab, I think very often, more often than not, you'd be surprised and you'd be amused. You know, you could be disappointed a few times, but that's okay. We're always disappointed, you know, one way or another with, with, with one of these films. So it's okay. I think it's remarkable. And I think it's uh, it's really welcoming to for people to know more about different documentary practices from different regions and to know more about their cinema. So, uh, so thank you. So with a donkey's hook is definitely the independent Egyptian filmmaker version of Tim Gunn's Make It Work. And it is a call to make the seemingly impossible possible. Seeing films can be a model for artist development and production companies across the globe. They operate from a growth mindset by staying current and building programs based on specific filmmaker needs. And more importantly, and in the tradition of Audre Lorde, they recognize that the master's tools can never be used to dismantle the master's house. Fostering the creation of liberated resources leads to liberated content and is at the heart of what builds community, communal success, and true sustainability. Thank you so much for listening today. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe on all of your podcast platforms. When you give us that five-star rating, it helps to make people more aware of our podcast. Next week, we'll have an interview with IFA senior programmer, Laura Van Halselma, where we will take a deep dive into the unconscious bias strand of films that will be screened this year at the festival. And don't forget to take a listen to our November 5th episode with Noise PR's Miriam Vikenkamp 
who has represented nine films this year. Remember, we're taking a break in December, but we'll release a second past guest roundup where we will share good news about our favorite dog peeps. We'll start out January with two episodes we co-curated for Dog Isaac in October, featuring Miriam Ghani and Jihan El Tari. In 2022, we'll be bringing you interviews with Marion Schmidt, Betsy Sai, Jennifer Crystal Chen, and Emma Francis Snyder, and that lost interview with Ivan and Ivy McDonald. Visit our website at whatsupwdocs. That's whatsupwdocs.com. And make sure to sign up for our mailing list to get the latest show news. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at whatsupwdocs. Again, that's whatsupwdocs. And remember, keep telling your stories. <laughs>